you're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Hey y'all, before we get started, this is something I intended to include in the body of the episode, but forgot. Again, I've been intending to include this for a while and I keep forgetting. Now that we've finished recording the toyne, Though the last episode of that hasn't come out yet, it is recorded. I'm planning to take my turn to do a longer text that we will, like we did with the toy, break up with smaller texts, mostly presented by Zoe, in between. However, I haven't quite decided what that text should be. I have managed to narrow it down to two options, and I would like to ask for y'all's opinion as to which you would like to hear. The options are as follows. Procopius's Anecdota or Secret History from 6th century Byzantium. This is supposedly, or at least presented as, all of the scandalous information about the reign of Emperor Justinian that Procopius left out of his official history. Procopius having been Justinian's court historian. I have a public domain translation of this one, but it's quite long, so I'll actually be presenting summaries and excerpts. The other option is, well, it's French, so I'm going to say the title wrong, but Perles Vaus, or The High History of the Holy Grail from 13th century France. This is an Arthurian romance that's noted for its dramatic divergences from both the Arthurian canon, as canon as that gets, and from the general sense of consensus reality. It's a weird text. There is a public domain translation of this one as well, but it's unreadable because the Victorian who compiled it thought he was Thomas f***ing Mallory and archaized all over the place. So what I'd be presenting is a summary slash paraphrase that I construct from a more recent, more readable, not public domain translation. So let us know which one you'd rather hear. I'm going to put a poll on Twitter and Facebook after this episode comes out. But if you're not following us on Twitter or Facebook, you can just contact us and let us know. Go to our website. Use our contact form. Just to be clear, we do have a couple months worth of backlog. So whatever you vote for, you won't see immediately. But we will start recording it very soon. Also, one more thing before I let Past Us take over and the episode start. Because of the fact that this is another special episode and a lot of our usual segments just don't apply, in lieu of most of those, I've whacked on to the end a correspondence segment we recorded a couple weeks ago but haven't had space to attach to anything yet. So if that's your bag, look forward to that. All right. Take it away, Past Us. All right. So, this is a special episode. Yes. I would say it is a good follow-up to our previous special episode because our previous one was quite serious and this is more just fun. For the fun of it, yes. Yes. But this is this is basically your area of expertise. I would go that... I mean, I guess I am doing a dissertation on this stuff, but I haven't done enough of it to feel like an expert in it. That's the imposter syndrome talking. Every single PhD or postgrad has it. Fair, fair. We're all sitting here staring at our professors like, wow. And it's like, you know, you're you're getting there. You're pretty close. 
If you're doing a PhD on something, you're specified enough to be considered an expert on it. Fine. (laughs) Well, anyway, since we're talking cryptically, what we're actually doing is we're going to take this episode to spend some time on some leechdoms that are too long to fit into our normal leeches corner, but that are fun. And also spend a little more time talking about the texts that we're using for this. Oh, yes. Because I actually don't know that much about the leech book, so I'm I'm very interested. And there's going to be so much here that you can use in a D&D campaign, I feel like, so this is just perfect. Yeah. The text that we're looking at here, the leech book survives in one manuscript, and it's the work of at least two different authors. So we've got leech books one and two, which are collectively referred to as Bald's leech book because they are indicated by an inscription that says this book is owned by Bald, and it was compiled for him by Kild, or however you say C-I-L-D in early English. I'd say Kild. Yeah, yeah Kild. Kild. I'm assuming that Bald is the leech and Kild is like his assistant or just a scribe that he paid to make it for him. Or maybe his grad student. And this is Bald as in like when you have no hair. Yes, this is the same spelled spelling exactly of the, the word. the same way. Yes, for clarification. Yes. Because there's other names, you know, like Aik, which is E-G-I-L, so... Right. It's a little bit weird, especially when you're doing a podcast. I mean, most most early English names are a little more straightforward. True. It's the Norse stuff that's hard, and that I'm still convinced I'm always saying wrong. It always. It, it just... It happens. But anyway, so the first two are Bald's Leech Book, and they're arranged in the way we've talked about before, where it's it starts at the head and it goes down to the foot, and it's split up so that in Leech Book 1, it's mostly external ailments, and then it starts up at the head again in Leech Book 2, but does internal ailments. And then there's Leech Book 3, which is apparently unrelated, because the, the inscription that says, like, this Leech Book belongs to Bald comes at the end of Leech Book 2. And Leech Book 3 seems to be another book in roughly the same kind of structure that's written by someone else. And whether that's the structural similarity is because they're basing it on Bald's Leech Book or because that's just how Leech Books were laid out at the time is unclear. Fair enough. So we don't we don't precisely know whether this is something unique to the author and compiler and they're modeling off of this or whether it's just this is how you write a medical textbook. Right. In in our one surviving manuscript, apparently someone had access both to Bald's Leech Book and to another source. And the other source is Leech Book 3. Because they're all put together in the manuscript. Makes sense. Okay. General question, because some of these things that we've talked about before are like psychological issues. So do those issues come in as an external or internal problem? I'm guessing internal, but I'm just curious. I think it's internal, although there's not a whole lot about, like, madness and stuff. Right. Yeah, mental health was not precisely one of their priorities. Yeah, they did. well, they didn't have a, a strong, like, conception of what it was exactly. There is some stuff right. about demons, but... Yeah, because how else are you really going to name it? We don't have a good... Or they didn't have a good concept of this yeah, sort of thing. but... I don't have an answer for that, is is the answer. That's fair. I was just curious. Anyway, the significant difference between Leech Books 1 and 2 and Leech Book 3 is that 1 and 2 were clearly compiled by someone who had access to a lot of classical sources. 
Like, you can see parallels in surviving classical sources and go like, okay, he got that from this. That's right. We've talked about this. Or, or it'll reference uh, Mediterranean herbs that are mm-hmm. not uh, native to England. Right. However, Leech Book 3 is much less classically influenced. It seems to be much more local knowledge. It may have been compiled by someone with less of an access to, to a library or someone who had different priorities, but it's in a lot of ways very different because of that. Fair enough. Another question that you might not know the answer to, because this is more about like the book itself, the text itself. Sure. Are they written in the same hand? You know, I don't know, but I can find out. Because that would be very interesting to me to see whether, you know, is there a time skip here? Is it about the same time? Are they different hands? Different people compiled these? Because the provenance is generally the history of the manuscript itself. So I'm, I'm talking more about who wrote it, which is a little bit different than the provenance. But regardless, you can gain a lot of information by looking at the manuscript itself. And that's something that I feel like many people who are outside of medievalist circles are less aware of. You can learn a lot by the uh, text by looking at the paleography, which is the study of the handwriting itself. So what kind of script is it in? Was this particular to a certain time or place or so on and so forth? What does the marginalia say? That's one of my favorite things. What languages are they using? Are there glosses in different languages? So on and so forth. So you can learn a lot from the paleography, which is why I asked the question. According to a 2004 article by Richard Scott Noakes, I think is how you say that, uh, the surviving manuscript we have contains four different hands, but three of those hands are marginal, like they're not part of the main text. Gotcha. So this is something that one person wrote all this down, but the person who wrote it down is not the same person who originally compiled any of them. Gotcha. Yes. Makes sense. Bald's Leech Book and Leech Book 3 come from separate sources, and then someone else who had access to both of them wrote them down in a single manuscript. Right. Right. Which is how you collect information in the Middle Ages. Okay. Very good to know. Now, let me see what's a good one to start with. So here's one from Leech Book 2. All right. Wart drinks for all liver diseases. Let one work for drinks for liver sick man, seed of March, of dill, of wormwood. Rub into water in the manner in which leeches ken, that's ken, K-E-N, as in no, give to drink. Again, let the patient drink for three days, dust of costmary and of pepper and of other warts like these. Let him lie on the right side for half an hour and drink again in the evening. Let him withhold himself also from vinegar, from the bath, from peas and beans and navues, which according to my footnote is a type of small turnip. Good to know. And from the things which work in man, a windy vapor. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) At least we have got a broad category here. That's helpful. Again, beat or rub up and sift costumary, fenugreek, or possibly fenugreek, pepper, Mm -hmm. hair's treadles, that would be poop. Ah, from a rabbit then. That's, that's, okay. Well, from a hair. They're different. Well, okay, fair enough. Although I don't know if. That would have been recognized at the time, so who knows. Equal quantities of all. Put a spoonful of this into wine, and give it to him who is without fever to drink. To him who hath fever, that is mickle heat and fire, give it in warm water. So if you have liver problems, but you don't have a fever, you get this stuff in wine. If you have liver problems that come with a fever, you get it in water. That makes sense. Does it? Alcohol destroys your liver if you're you're an alcoholic. Like, that's one of the first things to go. But all of this is for liver problems. 
It's just whether or not they're accompanied by a fever. That's true. I mean, I guess you don't want to predispose somebody whose immune system is already compromised, but that's expecting quite a bit from, you know, the early Anglo-Saxons. So this is just for generic liver problems. Okay, so they can specify the liver, but they can't specify what sort of liver problem it is. Well, they don't need to. These are wart drinks for all liver diseases. Fair enough. No matter what's wrong with your liver, this will cure it. Good to know. Uh, Give it in warm water, then let him lie on the right side and lay his right hand stretched out under his head for half an hour. Again, wart drinks for liver disease. To two little bowls full of juice of clover, mingled with a little honey, add a bowl full of heated wine. Give this to be drunk for three days. If anything of evil be on the liver, the drink will cure it. Again, give to drink for four days, three little bowls full of the juice of wild mallow, mingled with two such of water. And if fever disease be on him, the wart drink driveth it away. Again, rub together wine and cumin and honey, give him this to drink. Again, five and twenty bunches of ivy berries, gathered in the month, which we height in Latin, that's uh, height, call. Yeah, to call. In Latin, januarius, and in English, the second yule. Yeah, I like that. I do like that. And of pepper as much, rub these up with the best wine and heat it. Give it to the sick man after his night's fasting to drink. A leechdom again for liver disease. Dry clean. I assume that doesn't mean the same as (laughs) how we clean clothes, but that's what it says. (laughs) Imagine the possibilities, though. Yes. Anyway, continue. Dry clean. Dry clean some twigs. Or stalks of polewort. Okay, so is this referring to, like, stripping them of their bark? I think. And leaving them to dry? I think. Okay. Or maybe it just means, like, clean them by, like, scraping the dirt off, but not washing the dirt off. Oh, that would make sense. Uh, Stalks of colwort with the flower heads. Burn two ashes. Store the ashes. And when occasion is, put a spoonful of the ashes with 11 ground peppercorns into old, very clear wine. Then heat it. Give to be drunk the next time nine corns, and the third time seven. Interesting. And this is still for liver problems. Yes. All of these are just, like, to fix whatever's wrong with your liver. And remind me what bark they're using? Uh, colwort. Colwort. And I'm not sure if that's twigs or stalks of colwort, or twigs or stalks of colwort. I'm trying to figure out what the heck a colwort is, and this is not helping me because now I'm just getting wart, you know, removal. Well, that's because you're spelling wart wrong. Wart, the plant kind, is spelled with the O. Oh, with the O. Okay. Okay. Another archaic term for coal. Thank you. That's incredibly useful. Cabbage. Oh. Or anything that's brassica, apparently. Yeah. Interesting. Most of these things are very simple to digest, I feel like. I mean, we've got some spices here and there, but why would you why would you burn stalks of coal instead of just, you know, eating the coal? <laughs> the, Mac just made a very generic, I don't know, expression. It's magic. Fair enough. That's why. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's fair. Why seven peppercorns? It's magic. Fair enough. A leechdom again for liver disease. Rub small a bunch of bay berries and 20 peppercorns. Put them in a bowl full of old wine and mingle them together with a glowing iron. Give to drink and let him lie still. 
sound it may that may sound weird to some people, but in the Middle Ages they did enjoy hot spiced wine and you did prepare that by stirring it with a hot iron. That makes sense. That's actually what happened to one of the famous early English manuscripts. I think it's the Exeter book. There's a burn mark that goes through part of it, and it looks like someone had set down the iron on it by accident. Oh, no! Not the book! I think that's the damage that happened to the to the ruin, the, the early English poem, The Ruin, that's all like... Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah. It was that part of the book, I believe. Aw, can you imagine there's, like, some little apprentice who's trying to make the mold wine while he's doing his studying or whatever, and he sets it down on the book, and then, you know, next thing you know, he's like, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit, and he just, you know, freaks out. Oh, I apologize. Now you're going to have to bleep all of those out. <laughs> it's okay. I've actually got a macro for the bleeping. Nice. But it might have also happened during a time when they didn't particularly value the book. I think there's also evidence that it was used as a cutting board at one point. I mean, have I done that? Yes, probably. <laughs> but our books are much more easily replaceable than their books were. Yes. So, all right. Relatable. Anyway, also for liver diseases, put three bundles of rue into wine in a crock and three mickle bowls full of water. Boil them down to the third part and sweeten them thoroughly with honey. Then again, boil off. Give this to be drunk. Again, rub into the best wine, the upper part of the green twigs of a pine tree. Administer this. Pine has a lot of medicinal uses, actually. The pine needles can actually be used to treat scurvy because they have very large amounts of vitamin C. I did not know that. Yeah, so you can make pine tip tea or spruce tip tea. Or jelly. I've had spruce jelly, which was very interesting. I'm trying to even imagine that. I'm not, I'm not coming up with anything. It's very clear, but it works very nicely on, like, a rye bread with some cranberry with it. It's actually quite nice. But that's, again, one of those New World things, like Alaska things, and something that the indigenous peoples knew how to do is make that kind of tea oh. that the... Europeans didn't know about, and then, you know, we got this whole scurvy problem. Also, side note, I just double-checked this because I thought I knew what it meant, and I think I was correct. When we're referring to mickle, that is just a large amount. Yes, yes. Mickle just means big. This is part of the, like, archaizing that cocaine likes to engage in. Yes. I don't think many people use it in standard English anymore, but I think up in the north of England and in Scotland, you'll still hear people say muckle. It's the same yeah, I was, I was about to say it's still Scottish slang for, for muckle. So we were talking about completely reasonable medicinal applications. Yes. Again, a heart's lungs. That's heart, H-A-R-T, deer. With the throat ripped up and spread out and dried in the smoke. And when they are full well dried, break them and rub them small and then collect them with honey. Give this to the liver sick man to eat. It is a healing leech dump. I have never personally tried this, but I would. Yeah, it sounds like they're just making jerky out of deer lungs and then putting yeah. it in honey. I mean, maple glazed jerky is the best. So I've like I've never had lung, so I would rather use like a chunk of, of meat rather than the lung, but I don't know. Yeah, well that won't fix your liver problems. Good thing I don't have liver <laughs> problems then. <laughs> If the liver wax large, let the man drink an emetic drink, which means a drink that makes you puke. 
for those of you who are not familiar with that term. Zoe just made a face. Ugh, yeah, I don't like vomiting. I don't think anyone likes vomiting. Well, see, it's interesting because my brother, when he has food allergies, he has a really upset stomach. And then once he throws up, he feels better afterwards. Oh, yeah, that's the point of it. See, but I would rather just keep it down. I, like, mm -mm, I won't. I, uh... All right. It's <laughs> up to you. Yeah, I mean, sort of. Again, for a week after that, let him drink bean broth and no other liquid. Next week, let him drink wormwood boiled in mashwort and no other liquid. Uh, mashwort is a byproduct of beer brewing. Yes. For the, again, for people who don't know. And wormwood is gross. It's what makes absinthe taste the way it does. Good to know. This in particular feels like something that you could almost use as a hangover cure, but at least if like you either overindulge or you have an uh, like food poisoning or an upset stomach for some reason, it's very much like, okay, get it out of your system and then only have, you know, the broth. It's very mild. You just sort of reset. If anyone tries one of these as a hangover cure, let us know. It'd be good to know. And there is a wart called Aeliver. Boil that also in mash wart. Let him drink that for the third week and no other liquid. Let him drink after that an emetic drink for one turn. I don't know what a turn is in this context. That's a good question. I would just probably say a short period of time. Another probably. day. A turn of the sun, if you will. Now I have to look it up, because it's going to bother me. So I can just get the, um... The Old English? Yeah. Yeah. And then I can look that up, and hopefully they'll have translated it as something other than turn. That would be useful. This is one of the problems with using translations. I know we've talked about this quite a bit on this podcast, but I'm just going to reiterate it again, because it's very important. If you don't have any facility with the original language that you're using, you are at a disadvantage when you're doing your scholarship because you're relying on other people's translations. And a good point about this was, um, I don't remember the translator's name, but she was the first woman to translate the Odyssey. And a lot of the old, you know, Victorian, etc. translators had used more derogatory terms for women or more derogatory terms for servants or slaves or so on and so forth. And that has come through in the papers written about it because the scholars are relying on translations and not looking at the original work itself. So her translation was lauded for those reasons and also gained some criticism because, you know, the feminists are taking over. Mm. But, you know. <laughs> Suck it up. I know, I know. But again, this is why looking at the original text is so key to medieval studies and not just, you know, the classics. All right, future Zoe note. This is referring to the translation of the Odyssey that I referred to that was translated by a woman. And that translation is by Dr. Emily Wilson. There's a beautiful little summary of why her translation is so important. And uh, I'll read that off. That's from a Tumblr post by Sinbrook. And I think it's a great commentary. Uh, and since I haven't read it, I'm going to refer to that. I'm also going to refer to 
uh, Dr. Wilson's tweets as well, specifically. So, in the original Odyssey, in the scene where Telemachus murders the slaves who were, quote, sullied by Penelope's suitors, he refers to them with a word that roughly just means, quote, the female ones. However, most translations will use words like whores, sluts, and creatures, and these were all choices of the translators. The original text did not refer to them that way. Dr. Wilson refers to them instead as girls to highlight their age and the brutality of the action. She also fixed all the times previous male translators dodged around the existence of slaves in the text, where they call slaves anything but slaves, such as housemaid, nurse, cook, etc. Dr. Wilson's translation correctly calls them slaves, as in the original texts. It's a really great translation, it doesn't soften anything, and lays bare the reality of the story. She also refused to make the descriptions of the women in the story more palatable to modern Western standards of beauty. The original text, for example, describes Penelope's hands as thick. Most male translators change this to steady, but Dr. Wilson's translation calls them firm, muscular hands to correctly portray the original intent that Penelope, as a character who weaves every day and every night and undoes her weavings, has strong hands and weaving does make one's hands more muscular. And that was clearly what was originally intended to be said, given the context of the character and the weavings. Of Odysseus himself, the original epic calls him polytropos, poly meaning many, and tropos meaning turn. Some male translators use this to say the story itself had twists and turns, others ignored the word completely to write in a way that made Odysseus seem as though he was a straight-up hero, a man skilled in all the ways of contending. But Dr. Wilson uses it to mean complicated, because Odysseus isn't a straight-up hero, he does some really sh- things, end quote. So I would agree with this. Odysseus is a complex character and translators always make choices. So uh, Wilson herself talks about the sirens. Okay, quoting from Emily Wilson's tweets, everyone knows the story of the sirens from the Odyssey. They're the singers who tempt all those who sail past to listen to them forever, forgetful of their families. Odysseus, instructed by Circe, has himself bound to the mast so he can listen to their song. He also has his men bung up their ears with wax so that they can't hear. In the popular modern imagination, the sirens are tempting because they're sexy mermaidish ladies, as in the scene in O oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Which, if you don't know what that is, it's a sort of bluegrass riff on the Odyssey. Fantastic film. I enjoy it. But anyway, back to her tweets. But the Homeric Sirens passage in Book 12 is surprising in at least two ways. One, how short it is. The episode has become much bigger, a much bigger part of the Odyssey in modern retellings than it is in the Homeric poem. Secondly, the Sirens in Homer aren't sexy, e.g. we learn nothing even about their hair in contrast to other divine temptresses. The seduction they offer is cognitive. They claim to know everything about the war in Troy and everything on Earth. They tell the names of pain. Today, I wonder whether there's a tendency among translators to fight back against these disturbing facts about the original text, and surely enough, there is. Here are two lines from the passage, and she cites them in the Greek, and then she provides Loeb's translation. Quote, For never yet has any man rowed past the island in his black ship until he has heard the sweet voice from our lips. Instead, he has joy of it, and goes his way a wiser man. And then let's see. The Loeb, again, this is said to be the literal prose version, translates the Greek word, as lips. The word means mouths. It does not mean lips. It just doesn't. There's no reason I can think of to turn mouth into lips unless you want to make make sure the sirens sound sexy. So that's Wilson's commentary about that passage. 
And um, some more brief commentary about her translation in general. I think you could make an argument for the Loeb translation that maybe they're being poetic and maybe it's more of the spirit of the text and stylistic choices. But again, every translator makes choices and uh, how you work with those choices matters. So that's her take on the Odyssey. I highly recommend picking up a copy of her translation. And yeah, there you go. Back to the rest of it. Oh. That makes sense. When it says drink it for one turn, it means drink it all in one go. Oh, it's like taking a shot. Yeah. Okay. See, that's very useful. (laughs) That's why we specify. That's why we look at the original. Or if it's a larger drink than you can do in a shot, then I suppose it means you have to chug it. Yeah. Yeah. So is this the emetic one? Yes, it is. Ah, that makes sense. This is something that you don't want to sip. You want to get it down so you can vomit up whatever you have to vomit up. Yes. That makes sense why they're specifying it. All right. So that's what we have on liver diseases. And now I'm going to scroll down to the one from Leech Book 3 that made me decide we needed to do this just so I'd have an excuse to read this whole thing. Because it's way too long to fit in a segment. This is Leech Book 3, number 62. Against Elf Disease. Oh, yes. Here we go. I love this one. Okay. Okay. I'm excited. Keep going. Are you familiar with this particular recipe, or do you just like the concept of elf disease? Both. Okay. Both is good. Take bishopwort, fennel, lupin, the lower part of Enchanter's Nightshade, and moss or lichen from the hallowed sign of Christ, and incense of each a handful. So, they, they want moss, specifically some that grew on a crucifix. Or a cross, I guess. I was going to say, like, are, are we talking, like, what I'm imagining here is something that's erected outside of a church or a gravestone. Yeah, I'm thinking like the, like the Ruthwell cross, like those big stone ones. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and incense of each a handful. Bind all the warts in a cloth, dip it thrice in hallowed font water, have sung over it three masses, one omnibus sanctus, another contra tribulationem, a third pro infirmis. I assume means something to you. It doesn't mean anything to me. Well, let me... Okay, so go back to the first one. Oh, well, I know what they mean in Latin. Omnibus sanctus. That's got to mean like all saints or all holy things. Yeah, pretty much. Contra tribulationem against tribulation. Right. Pro infirmis for sickness. Yeah, for sickness. Or on behalf of. Pro can be a couple different things. I don't know what what masses these would be referring to, though. They're... My guess would be small, either charms or ritual prayers mm-hmm. that were fairly common at this time. Yeah, I assume this is the equivalent of saying, like, say a Hail Mary. And yeah. I kind of know what a Hail Mary is, but I'm not familiar with any of these. Right. Anyway, once you've said these things, then put gleeds in a gleed pan. And remember, gleeds are coals. Yes, hot gleeds coals. are hot coals. I was going to, I was also going to say that because I'm like, I know, <laughs> I'm sure someone's forgotten. Yes, it is in our our definitions, though, so it is there for you. And lay the warts on. Reek the man with the warts, which means, like, uh, reek is smoke. So that Mm -hmm. that means, like, you're you're blowing the smoke at him. It literally says, smoke the man with the warts. But I I don't think you're supposed to envision, like, how you smoke meat and, like, he's rotating over (laughs) them. It's more like incense. You've got the, you know, the sage and stuff. I assume it's more like... Have him breathe it in. Yeah. Uh, Before nine in the morning. Okay. This is something that only works before nine in the morning. 
That makes sense. And again at night, but not okay. in between. Okay. And sing a litany, and the credo, and the paternoster, and write Christ's mark on each of his limbs, and take a little handful of warts of the same kind similarly hallowed, and boil in milk. Drop thrice some hallowed water into it, and let him sip of it before his meat. Again, it just means food. Cocaine always translates uh, meta as meat, because that's the cognate. But it's one of those words that's gotten more specific as time went on. It yeah, used to just mean sense. food of any kind. Now it means flesh. They would have said flesh uh, if they were specifying. Yeah. Much like deor in Old English means animal, but its cognate is deer. Yes. Which does mean there are some great lines in some Old English texts where people are savaged by deer. <laughs> I mean, moose are terrifying if you're attacked by a moose and people do get savaged by moose. So I would, I mean, you know, I'd believe it, especially, okay, side note, Trinity has the coolest skeleton of this ancient European elk and it's massive. It's bigger than a moose. Which is saying something, because moose are huge. Right, they're basically Pleistocene megafauna that just didn't die off. Yeah, basically. And, like, think about, like, an elk, but, like, basically the size of an elephant, maybe a little bit smaller. And that's sort of what I picture in the Agricola, which is sort of Tacitus's first pseudo-ethnography of, the like, the Germans and the Gauls. Yeah. I have a line from the Agricola uh, cross-stitched on my wall. <gasps> Which one? They make a desert and call it peace. Oh, that's a good one. Oh. But anyway, he talks about these like giant wolves and giant boars and giant deer. And that's what I think of. And even though we're talking like this is several hundred years later, this is sort of generally what I'm thinking of about like, medieval forests and the old growth that we just don't have anymore because they largely deforested massive parts of Europe. But that's generally what I think of. So I think being savaged by a deer is fairly accurate, even if the word could mean other creatures. That's true. Yeah. It's a possibility. But Deor definitely does mean just animals. And we know this because there's also a line, which I love, that explains a tiger is a type of deer. God bless. <laughs> I love these translators. And by love them, I mean they were so wrong. I mean, I think all the translators correctly res uh, resolve that as a tiger is a type of animal. But when you're doing like translation practice and you come across it, it's hard to resist writing a tiger as a type of deer just That's out of fair. perversity. That's, yes. Uh, okay, so back to this extraordinarily thorough yes. cleansing ritual. All right, so he's sipping this, like, boiled milk stuff before his, his meat. It will soon be well for him. For that ilk, meaning another thing for the same sort of problem, go on Thursday evening, when the sun is set, where thou knowest that Hellenium stands, the Hellenium being a plant, then sing the Benedicite, Benedicite, whichever. The benediction. Probably. And Paternoster, and a litany, and stick thy knife into the wart. Make it stick fast, and go away. Go again, when day and night just divide. I assume that means at either dawn or dusk. At the same period, go first to church and cross thyself, and commend thyself to God. Then go in silence, and though anything soever of an awful sort or man might meet thee, say not thou to him any word, ere thou come to the wart, which on this evening before thou markest. 
there's no way that's how you're supposed to spell that. <laughs> uh, cocaine has a thou marketst DST. Oh. And I'm like, <laughs> wow. I'm not sure if that might be how no, you... No, I've, I've definitely seen that before. It's really hard to say. It's extremely inconvenient, but it does look fancy. Okay, so what is... What do you think the significance of not speaking is? Like, are we are we holding some sort of holy energy within oneself before we like we take it from the church and go to the wart, and then from there are we are we, are we about to say a benediction? See, I'm assuming that what it is is it's because remember this is against a disease caused by elves, right? So maybe this is like don't give the fey folk your name if you meet someone on the road, uh... don't talk to them. Because they're trying to trick you, you out of fixing it. Right. You don't know whether they're fey or not. Yeah. Ooh, I like that. That's even better. Uh, but you do, in fact, then sing the benediction. So it might also yes. be yours. And the paternoster. And a litany. Delve up the wart. Let the knife stick in it. Go again as quick as thou art able to church. And lay it under the altar with the knife. I really hope that this is something that you didn't ask the priest about first. So occasionally he'd just come by and go like, why is there a plant and a knife under my altar? <laughs> oh, I like that idea. I, I also like the idea of this poor guy who's hustling back and forth between the forest and the church. Yes. And, and, you know, the pastor sitting there like reading, reading the Bible, like over his morning tea or whatever. Like, what the? Oh, uh, <laughs> you all right there, Paul? <laughs> Beth's got the water elf disease. <laughs> How do you say a benediction again? Yeah. <laughs> that, okay, but that's actually a good point. Because unless you are routinely going to church and already familiar with, you know, Paternoster, Quiescentum, you know, so on and so forth, unless you're already familiar with those, you know, like the blessings or creeds that we weren't as familiar with, like the Omnibus One and the... Mm -hmm. What was it? The tribulation one, etc. Right. Well, those those are the ones that you have to get a priest to do. Ah, okay, okay. So okay. those so specify those are at the specific. beginning have sung over it three masses. So those are right. presumably you're getting someone to do it. Who knows? Right. But uh, you personally are supposed to do the litany, the credo, the paternoster, and the benediction, which everybody would know mm -hmm. at that point in time. Basically. But since it's Latin, probably a lot of people didn't understand the word so as far as they're concerned it's just magic it's a magic spell yeah, yeah basically anyway you let the plant and the knife lie under the altar till the sun be up wash it afterwards and make it into a drink and bishop wart and lichen off a crucifix this time it does say crucifix specifically okay good to know or at least the translation does what does the original say with that grow that lichen and... What? This is 99% of translation, is looking at a text and going, what? It doesn't help that Cocaine is using, for his bit in the original text, he's using a very archaic font, too. It's basically oh. insular script. Oh, great, thanks. So there's a lot of, <laughs> is that an S or an R? Oh, no. And for, for those unfamiliar with paleography, the, the insular script is one of the types of scripts or fonts essentially that scribes would write in and if you've ever seen something that was printed for instance in the 1770s they would oftentimes write s's 
that came up very, very high, and they basically look like Fs. So if you're not familiar with, with that lettering, you stare at this word, and you're like, why does that have an F in it? That should be an S. Well, it is an S. So the same thing happens with a lot of medieval manuscripts if you're not familiar with the abbreviations or with how they wrote the letters. So R and S can look very, very similar, yeah. which makes it very difficult when you're using another language like Old English, and it's like, okay, well, which case ending am I using, for instance? I would also add that for whatever reason, a lot of early English scribes used multiple different kinds of S. Uh, <laughs> this is true. And there was no universal rule about when to use what. Like in, in like the early modern period with the long S, you're like, okay, you use the long S here and the short S here. Like they had rules, but they didn't back then. And so you have multiple different S's and you that can be confused with other different letters. Well, this also gets back to the uh, the F and the thorn issue here, mm -hmm. because in Old English, different scribes used the F, which is like the little D with a you know cross through it, or the thorn, which is the straight line with a little curly loop on it, and it wasn't specified. It didn't make different sounds. It was just whatever the scribe wanted. Whereas, for instance, in modern Icelandic, they make two different sounds. Mm -hmm. So there's still quite a bit of debate among people who are, shall we say, somewhat familiar with one and less familiar with the other about whether or not you pronounce the F and the thorn in two different ways or whether it's the same pronunciation and so on and so forth. So that, that is also an issue when you, when you read through these texts. Yeah, this is further complicated by the fact that the Bosworth Toller Online Old English Dictionary uh, has a button to put a thorn into your search, but not one for F. Oh my gosh. Because they're just like, okay, if you need an F, just type a thorn. Just type a thorn, yeah. Yeah, they, yeah. they make the same sound. But all of this is just because there was no standardized spelling yet. So people just wrote down how it sounded to them with their best understanding of orthography. So you actually learn a lot more from it about regional accents, but you're also occasionally confused. Yes, very true. And this goes all the way up through Middle English. Middle English has no standardized spelling, and therefore neither do I, because it ruined me. Anyway. <laughs> As someone who regularly sees documents that Zoe writes, I can vouch for the fact that she has no standardized spelling. I can't spell, which is terrible, given that I'm a writer. But that's what spell check is for. I'm just here to put the words on paper. Do they have to make sense? No, they don't. So if you're reading the blog and you're just going like, this word is spelled wrong, it's not spelled wrong. <laughs> Zoe just doesn't standardize spelling because she's middle I English. I do try. <laughs> I do try. I spell check. I, I swear I do. I just every once in a while miss one. I also, having having lived in Ireland, I do my best to stick with American spellings, but sometimes the word realize has an S instead of a Z, so I do make those mistakes, I think, more often. Yes, so thank you for bearing with me, all of you. <laughs> anyway, I looked it up. The bit in the original text, which is being translated as crucifix, is actually just says clistes mal, which means a lot of things. Mal can mean measure, mark, sign, cross, crucifix. Etc. So it's it's literally just like it's the same as before. Mm. Christ's sign. Now I've lost the window I was using. So once you get that lichen off of the crucifix, cross, whatever, boil it in milk thrice, thrice pour holy water upon it, and sing over it the Paternoster, the Credo, and the Gloria in Excelsis Deo. We know that one. That's a Christmas one. Yeah. I was always impressed by just how many syllables Gloria has. Always in the church. 
uh, and sing upon it a litany, and score with a sword round about it on three sides across. And then after that, let the man drink the wort. Soon it will be well with him. So these are very much influenced by symbology as opposed to our earlier liver cures. Yeah. Presumably because whatever the elf shot are, or I'm sorry, whatever the elf sickness is and whatever the elves have inflicted upon you is also a sort of spiritual or magical warfare. And therefore you're going to need to counter it with more spiritual measures. Personally, I suspect what this is, is there were pre-Christian like rituals to deal with elf disease. But once that stuff started getting more and more frowned upon and less and less written down, the versions that ended up being written down are similar rituals, but with all the pagan symbols replaced with Christian symbols. Yeah, and a lot of the time you just would take out, you know, Odin's name or Woden's name and then replace, you know, Deus or God, whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting to me that and this is one of the things I really enjoyed touching on in my dissertation, is that it's not that magic is not okay. You can 100% use magic, but it just has to be the right kind. It has to be this this kind. So you can use a ritual, but you don't invoke, you know, Woden. You invoke God. So you invoke Christianity rather than invoking the either pagan slash demonic slash whatever gods. And so those just, I mean, those are really the only distinctions because one of the things that I feel like we overlook is that the medieval world is a supernatural world and we don't live in that world anymore. We're not in that headspace. And so you really have to shift your mindset when reading these cures in particular, because this isn't something that is ridiculous to do it is something that is second nature to do and you just have to make sure you're invoking the right things to solve a cure for a supernatural problem yeah personally i recommend doing this especially if there's a local priest that you want to annoy very true again for the same problem lay these warts under the altar have nine masses sung over them incense holy salt whatever that is do you know what holy salt is i mean i would assume it's just salt that's been blessed yeah, probably. But, yeah, looking over at the uh, original, it literally says holy salt. Okay, apparently it has a long a long history, and you can get holy salt on Amazon and Etsy. Yeah, and it is just salt blessed by a priest. Boom. There you go. Also, fun fact, I did not know that you cannot dilute holy water, so if you add a drop of holy water to another body of water, it's all then holy water. Does that mean that all water is holy water by now? Because you, you'd have to assume that everything's been... Yeah, Like, just from much. evaporating and raining back down. Right. Or, like, you know, imagine somebody just taking a little little jar of holy water and pouring it into the ocean. Yeah. That means if you drink holy water, you can pee holy water. And it's still holy <gasps> That's a good question. What are, what are the uh, metaphysics of ab- absorbing holiness? Do you pee the holiness out, or do you absorb it into your being? Yeah. If you know, listeners, tell us. (laughs) I feel like I need to consult a priest. Or we can do a double-blind study. (laughs) Yes! Let's go! We may need to lie to the priest about why we need holy water. Actually, I think you could just buy it on Amazon. 
I mean, at this point, I mean, to be fair, the Catholics have been selling salvation for a very long time. Yeah. I'm, I don't have any issues with, with the Catholics, obviously not. This is sarcasm. I think we need to do the study again, but have a Protestant priest bless the water and see if the results are different. Ooh. Why can't that be part of the same study? We have like a placebo, we have a Protestant holy water bucket, and mm-hmm. we have a Catholic holy water bucket. Yes. This is good. This, this is, is good very plan. good. This, this is obviously something that's objectively measurable and that we could absolutely <laughs> do. Okay, and so after consuming the holy water, we'd like you to perform a miracle here. <laughs> <laughs> Any miracle is fine. It doesn't have to be big. Just something, you know, demonstrable. Or like, uh, we need to see if your pee is holy. So we've brought Steve here. Steve is a real jerk, so we think that holy <laughs> things will hurt him. So we need you to pee on him and see if he burns. <laughs> oh no. There's a lot of ways you could you could go with this experiment. See, bringing bringing the arts and the sciences together yes. for the best reasons. <laughs> I mean, this is what theology is, right? This is what theologists do. They perform experiments like this. Pretty much. But yes, okay, so holy salt is, yes. uh, is a thing. Yes, and when I started typing it into Google, the first, like, it auto-completed holy salt for sale. <laughs> oh, gosh, I don't like that. I feel like things should, be, should become less holy through the process of being bought off Amazon. Oh, I 100% agree, which is why I don't take any stock in indulgences. But, okay, but here's an interesting thing. The use of putting salt before a doorway... For instance, to keep mm-hmm. out vampires, fae, demons, whatever. It's not the salt itself. It's the fact that it was holy salt. Oh. And then that part eventually got taken out. And so it's not the salt. Yeah, I thought demons were just watching their sodium. Apparently not. Because technically it's supposed to be holy salt. And then that just got taken out. Supernatural just got it wrong, man. Supernatural gets a lot of things wrong. Uh, Supernatural didn't get anything right, to be fair. Yeah. Except the Wendigo in, like, episode two. Yeah. But that was episode two of season one, and it's the only thing I remember. Among the many things Supernatural gets wrong is how you plot a long-running television show. They just, they got a lot wrong. Anyway, yeah, so if you are warding your house or using salt either in your daily practices, please be aware that the original intention of most of these things was holy salt, Man, I know that there's there's bound to be a lot of witches out there, or like people who practice witchcraft who are now like, wait a minute, I have to use holy salt? Well, I mean, if you're a non-Christian witch, then presumably you can bless the salt under the auspices of some other divinity. True. True, that is true. Like, if you're a pagan witch, whatever, I want to say patron, but I feel like that's D&D warlocks. We can still say patron. Like, whatever power you're speaking to. They can probably bless salt. Why not? Yeah, for sure. 100%. But but the issue is, is that I bet you there are plenty of witches out there who are wondering why their stuff is not working because they're just using salt and they're not designating it as holy salt first. Yes, that's definitely the reason it's not working. (laughs) So yeah, for anyone out there who is using salt and you haven't blessed it and your ritual is not working, that's why. I feel like we just solved a really big problem in the witch community here. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay. We, you have a hard out. We have to get through this. 
Yes, yes. All right, so uh, lay these warts under the altar, have nine masses sung over them, incense, holy salt, three heads of crop leek, the netherward part of enchanted nightseed. Nightseed? Nightshade. What is enchanted nightshade? Or enchanter's nightshade. Oh, okay. I can probably tell you, actually. I'm just wondering if it's a specific kind of nightshade that just has a cool name, or whether... I'm betting it just has a cool name. Yeah. Let's find out, because someone has, in fact, compiled all of this information. The Dictionary of Old English Plant Names. Is, of course, done by a bunch of European scholars, because we don't do anything interesting like that over here. I think they're all Central European. The scholars working on this project are located in Germany and in Austria. For more information on them and their project, we will put a link on the blog. Okay, so the Old English is Althonan. So enchanters might be a taking some liberties there. <laughs> That's why we're asking. It is... A specific type of nightshade, Solanum dulcamara, uh, which nowadays we call bittersweet nightshade. Also, I'm pretty sure that Thona means something specific. Do not approve of the new interface for Bosworth Toller. It was perfectly oh. fine before, and now it's all sleek and modern and doesn't work very well, like every other <laughs> website on the internet. Oh, alas. See, this is why I love Whitaker's words is that it's very, very simple. You just input the word you want, and it's all in. It's what just is Whitaker's <laughs> words? I don't know this one. Oh, my gosh. You don't know Whitaker's words? I it's don't the know greatest it. thing ever. So William Whitaker's words is basically um, a sort of a Latin dictionary. Basically, you stick your word in, and it parses the whole thing out for you. And it gives you what words it could be, in what case it is, and whether it's plural, blah, blah, blah. So this saved my ass in high school when I was trying to do Virgil, because I would be sitting here like, I don't know whether this is an accusative or whether it's a nominative plural, and I don't know what this word is, or I can't find the root. And you just type the word in, and you hit translate, and it automatically parses it for you. And it also has an English to Latin function. So if you're looking for a particularly cool word, world builders, this is for you. Uh, also, Bosworth Toller is fantastic for this. You can type in a word. So say you're looking for a different word for, I don't know, magic or bird or whatever. You can type the English word in, hit translate, and it will give you a list of various words and you know what their declension is and more grammatical information about them. But it gives you a bunch of different words. So you can find really, really cool root words to use in whatever you have to name, whether it's a town name or like a type of magic or whatever. But I use it a lot. It's a fantastic resource. And it's free. And it's also just great if you're struggling with Latin. Highly recommend it. (laughs) This strong opinion I have against fancy modern looking websites is why Zoe does the website. Because if... If I were given design powers over it, it would look like a 90s GeoCities page. <laughs> God bless. Anyway, I can't find anything for Alf, though, so I'm just going to s- skip over it. Cause well, again, Alf as in elf? elf? Elf, yes. So, okay. Yeah. So Thorn Enchanter O-N-E. is taking a little yeah. liberty there, but all right. Yeah, Elf thing. Anyway, that and Helenium. Fair enough. Take in the morning a cupful of milk, drop thrice some holy water into it, let the man sup it up as hot as he can. Let him eat therewith, 
three bits of Enchanter's Nightshade. Or Elfthong. Yeah. And when he hath a mind to rest, let him have in his chamber Gleeds. Let him lay on the Gleeds. And in this case, Cocaine has suddenly switched to Greek, which usually means it's <laughs> something he's embarrassed by. Oh no! Wait, so we're laying on the hot coals? No, he's laying something on the hot coals. Oh, okay. Understood. See, again, this is why you need to know, like, six different languages in order to translate one medieval text, is because, again, the Victorian translators were like, oh, this is too sensitive, so I'll change it up and switch to Greek, and that'll be grand. Yeah, Cocaine regularly switches to Latin and Greek every time there are women's issues at play. (laughs) Why? I... He's embarrassed by him. Doesn't want to talk about him in plain English. He is from the 1860s. Is there a presumption there that only the educated and therefore presumably mature people would be able to read that section as opposed to anyone who happens to pick up the text? It could be. It could also just be that Cocaine isn't comfortable talking about it in plain English. I, I don't understand that, but all right. Like how sometimes you'll hear international students switch into English to swear and then switch back because it it's less profane if you're using a language that's not your native one. Uh, I think it's that's that kind fair. of thing. Okay, that's understandable. In this case, however, he's just being pretentious because yeah. the word he's looking for is storax, which is a Greek word, but it's just a synonym for frankincense. He could have just written frankincense, but instead he's like, I'm going to use the Greek alphabet to show that I know this is a Greek word that they're that this text is using don't be that person when you're translating come on like also if you're writing a paper in english and you're using sources that are in a different language please at least like i understand put the original language but you like also it's okay to provide a footnote with a translation because a large section of your audience won't be able to read it I feel like the majority of current scholars are up on the put a footnote with the translation thing. But whenever I look at stuff from like 20th century scholars, they're like, here's a paragraph of French. You speak French, right? You don't? Then what are you doing reading literary theory? It's so frustrating. Anyway, yeah, the Old English is stor, S-T-O-R. It's a Greek loan word. And in order to show that he knows this, he has written it in Greek, which is... You, sir, are an ass. Annoying. Like, it... Because it's a different alphabet, so it's hard for me to look up. Yeah. Also, think about how long it just took us to look up this singular word in a translation, in something that is already translated for us. Again, don't be that person. Help other people do their scholarship. This is one of the things that is is weird about Cocaine, is once he starts talking about women's issues, it actually becomes easier to read the original than the translation. That's hysterical. Because at least it's still in Latin characters. Oh my gosh. And it's not like the original is particularly, like, direct either. They're pretty circumspect. Of course. They just say, like, the monthlies or something. Yeah. Ugh. Which is a lovely way to term it, I think. Anyway, where were we in this original? Uh, We're burning (laughs) frankincense and and now he's translating it as Elfthone. Because why? I don't know. See, but this this does go back to something that I think is fascinating, which is in Old English, whenever you have something that is elf or elf, there's several different ways to translate it every single time, especially because, for instance, we have the mountain elves, which is to say, generally speaking, our modern conception of dwarves. So, or hill elves, like wood elves, 
you know, and um, what is it? dark elves and light elves. And it's like, okay, we're not talking about drow here. The dark elves could literally just be the mountain elves again and blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah, blah. So what actually is an elf is very amorphous. And this also goes into what elf sickness is, what elf shot is, so on and so forth. And apparently also elf thorn. Yeah. And for a lot of this confusion, we can blame the early Christians for suppressing very, very, very true. Well, not early Christians, because I guess the early Christians weren't actually in England yet, but medieval Christians. The medieval Christians. Who were worse, because at least the early Christians were somewhat egalitarian in their manners. Yes, very true. Uh, where was Okay, so you're putting this and Elfthone on the Gleeds, and you reek him therewith until he sweat, and reek the house all through. Earnestly also sign the man with the sign of the cross, and when he is going to bed... Let him eat three bits of helenium, and three of crop leek, and three of salt, and let him have a cup full of ale, and thrice drop holy water into it. Let him sup up each bit, and afterwards rest himself. Let him do this for nine mornings and nine nights, it will soon be well with him. Interesting. Without a chapter or paragraph break, we're now launching into a related thought. Okay. If a man hath elf hicket, without what is that is. Ah, see, this is so frustrating to me. And it's this is the same problem that we have when we're talking about witchcraft and magic in general, which is to say we have more information about treating the malady than what the malady actually is. Yep. Or for witchcraft and magic, for prosecuting the witches rather than saying what actually witchcraft is. Right. I have a suspicion and I'm scrolling up to check it. Nope. I, I thought it might be the same word that he translated as elf sickness before, but no, it's a different one. Okay. Uh, that was elf adel. This is elf sogotha. Ooh. kind of sounds like yogsotha. Yeah, it does. Bosworth Toller has no further information about that. Their entire entry is a disease ascribed to fairy. Oh. <laughs> Seriously? Oh no. What? Uh, sogotha by itself means heartburn or hiccups. So these might be fairy hiccups. Amazing. But anyway... If a man has fairy hiccups, you can tell because <laughs> his eyes are yellow where they should be red. Okay, so they're jaundiced? Apparently. Also, I guess people had red eyes back then. Wild. <laughs> I think it means, like, the veins? Maybe they were just really bloodshot all the time. Oh, gosh, that's scary. If thou have a will to cure the man... Oh, and here's another reminder that when they say man, it's not Person. gendered. If thou have a will to cure the man... Observe his gestures and consider of what sex he be. Cockaine does not believe in the singular they. All his neutral pronouns are he, because he's from the 19th century. Right, 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 but read that one more time. If thou have a will to cure the man, one, observe his gestures, and two, consider of what sex he be. Ah, okay, okay, okay. Yes, I follow. Here are the signs you need to look for while doing that. If it be a man, I think this time it's gendered, and looketh up when thou first seest him, and the countenance be yellowish-black, thou mayest cure the man thoroughly, if he is not too long in the disease. If it is a woman, and looketh down when you first seest her, and her countenance is livid red, thou mayst also cure that. So, like, if a man does this and looks like this, or if a woman does this and looks like this, those are the types you can cure. Presumably, if they do it the other way around, you can't cure that. Ah, yes, the two genders, looking up and looking down. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Also yellowish black and livid red. And what are these colors referring to? Countenance. Oh, okay. So, like, auras? Skin. Ah, okay. 
Okay, so whether they're sort of red-faced or paler or... I think the yellowish-black might be jaundice again. Yeah, that makes sense. If it hath... Now I'm doing cocaine. He didn't didn't even make that a TH. If it has been upon the man longer than a twelve month and a day, and the aspect be such as this, then mayst thou amend it for a while, and notwithstanding mayst not entirely cure it. Write this writing. Scriptum est. Rex regum. Et dominus dominantium. Veronica. Veronica. And then there's a dot dot dot, which... An ellipses. Let's see what is... There, there's no translation. Oh, uh, he can't figure it out. Lur Lura Iehi, which he has translated as I-A-O. I think he's assuming Iehi is like a transliteration from Hebrew. Oh, okay. Because his footnote is some Hebrew letters. Ias, 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 Sanctus, 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 Dominus, Deus Sabaoth, Amen, Alleluia. Which I think is uh, kind of interesting because I always associate the name Sabaoth with the Gnostics. Oh, really? Interesting. There's a phrase that I teach my Latin students because they have like a Latin saying of the week. And one of them is, um, what is it? Like, Gloria, 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 Dominus Deus Sabaoth. Oh. Yeah. Well, there you go. So it is, it is classically a Christian phrase. Fair enough. Well, I would argue the Gnostics are more classically Christian than anyone in the medieval <laughs> period because they, they were early. Fair. Very beginning. Yes. Already there. Uh, seeing this over the drink in the writing. Deus omnipotens pater, pater, sorry, domini nostri Iesu Christi per impositionum huies scripturae expelle a famula turo. Insert name here. <laughs> I like to think that that was literally like written out. It is. Well, not really. It's a, it's a capital N. Oh, I like that. That's a great way to do it. No men. I'm translating it as insert name here. Cocaine says here insert the name, but I like... Well, it's probably saying for no men, which is name. Yeah. Omnim impetum castalidum de capite de capilis de cerebro de fronte de lingua de sublingua de gotora de faucibus de dentibus de oculis de naribus de... Or- I think this is just a list of parts of the head. That Yes, sounds right. Oh, now we're going down to the rest. De auribus, de manibus, de colo, de brachis, de corde, de anima, de ginibus, de coxis, de pedibus, de compagnibus, omnium membrorum intus et foris. So... All the internal body bits. Yeah, so it's just protect this person, name here, all parts of him, here's a list of parts. (laughs) Gotta be thorough as possible. If you leave off the feet, he'll still have cursed feet. I mean... That's how Achilles died. It's true. Then work up a drink thus. Font water, rue, sage, cassock, dragons, the netherward part of the smooth way broad. I'm sorry, I heard the word dragons. <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to stop me. I'm pretty sure that's like snapdragons, not like dragon dragons. Okay, but in my homebrew, it's dragons. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Feverfew, a head of dill, three cloves of garlic, fennel, wormwood, lavage, lupin, all of equal quantities, is going to taste terrible again because it's not only got wormwood, but it's got fennel, which has a similar awful taste. Okay, we have fennel for Thanksgiving every year. Thank you very much. It's like if you made grass out of licorice. It's very aromatic once you caramelize it. But I agree, this is a weird salad. (laughs) 
Write across three times with the oil of unction and say, Pax TB. Peace to you. Take the writing, describe a cross with it over the drink, and sing this over it. Dominus omnipotens, Pater Domini Nostri Iesu Christi, per impositionin huius scripture et per gustum huius expelle diabolum affamulu tuo, insert name here, and the credo and, pe- and paternoster. So that's interesting. So they're they're referencing a, a demon or the, the demon inside them. So mm-hmm. it's essentially an exorcism for the fairy hiccups. Yes. And in fact, this becomes more apparent. They're, they're basically borrowing from uh, exorcisms because wet the writing in the drink and write across with it on every limb and say, Signum crucis Christi conservet te in vitam, or vitam rather, aeternam. Amen. If it listeth thee not to take this trouble. So if you don't want to bother with all this. I mean... To be fair, this like this is a pretty involved process. Bid the man himself, or whomsoever he may have nearest, says Sib, but that just means kin. More accurately, past Mac, it means relationship, which may or may not be one of blood. To him, to do it, and let him cross himself as well as he can. This craft is powerful against every temptation of the fiend. Okay, so we're we're crossing a lot of wires here. First off, if the doctor slash priest slash whoever doesn't feel like putting in all this effort, or if they want the discount version, it's like, oh yeah, well, you know, here's the Latin, good luck. Right. These people don't know Latin. They don't have the expertise here. When I'm sure they're to- not literate either, so we'd have to like reel it off in front of them and say, like, remember that. Ugh. <sighs> And when it comes to performing this type of ritual, the words are so, so important. So this is really like the discount version here. Mm-hmm. I, I love that, it's, that it describes this really complicated thing. And it's like, if you don't feel like doing it, get the man's family to do it. Oh my gosh. It's like, all right, and how much, how much do you have to pay? Okay, no, okay, here. Here's this. Good luck. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, but it does get back into the fiend here. So, again, are elves their own sort of thing? Are they actually devils? You know, dot, dot, dot. It's unclear. Yeah, no one ever seems fully clear on that. No, never. There are otherworldly things that are generally not good. All right. There are a couple more I want to hit while we're on this topic. Cool. I've Shorter got ones. 40 minutes. Oh, dear. Work thus a salve against the elfin race and nocturnal goblin visitors. Oh, this is so cool. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, goblin is cocaine intruding. What it actually says is Nichtgingan, or Nightwalkers. Ooh, that's almost like Draugr. Yeah. So presumably it's, it's some kind of supernatural being that moves around at night. Cocaine has decided they're goblins. But that's a pretty general term in his time, at least. It doesn't have the same Tolkienian associations. So that's fair. Uh, yeah. And for the women with whom the devil hath carnal commerce, take the female hop plant, wormwood, bishopwort, lupin, ashthroat, henbane, harewort, viper's bugloss, heathberry plants, crop leek, garlic, grains of hedge rife, gith rife, fennel. Put these warts into a vessel, set them under the altar, sing over them nine masses, boil them in butter and sheep's grease, add much holy salt, strain through a cloth. Throw the warts into running water. Oh, we're not consuming it. 
I think it's just a protective charm. That makes sense. Against goblins and I guess incubi is what we're going with for the women. There's so much I could say to that and I just won't. <laughs> or maybe he's talking about witches. Ooh, that's Like either you're protecting take. yourself against witches or you're preventing the devil from visiting witches. So we're chucking this into fresh water? Running water, so I assume it has to be. So is this any freshwater source or is this like the town stream that they get the water from because that would sort of make sense if you want the witch to consume it but also Uh i don't want that mix in my fresh water thank you no especially because at least two of those things are poisonous yes not like a lot but a little you'd you'd have an upset stomach for a while I'm told you can use henbane recreationally, and they that they used to, but I wouldn't advise it. That's interesting. I did not know that. Supposedly, it gives you like a very like lightheaded flying feeling, but if you take too much, it'll kill you. Use responsibly, I guess. Oof. Yeah, they used to brew beer with henbane, which is why I know this. And there was an archaeological text about, like, the discovery of, like, vessels that had formerly contained Hinbane beer. And the author seemed, like, very worried that someone would be inspired by this to make some. So kept saying, like, this is not advised. This is dangerous. The forbidden knowledge that we've been searching for for all these years is just how to to get drunk and high at the same time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Is that not the most human thing that you've ever heard of? Dude, there used to be a lot. I mean, first, yes, it is. But there used to be a lot of, like, uh, herbal beers that people would Ooh. make. And I'm sure some of them were designed to okay, get Okay, but, like, in terms of microbreweries, there are so many microbreweries now. Why has nobody done this? Or why are we not doing, like, a kombucha beer combination thing? Why are we not making herbal beers again? There are some hemp beers, but they're all IPAs and they're all kind of gross. Or at least I all don't the like IPAs. Tried. I don't like beer in general, but IPAs are just too bitter. I don't either. I, don't, I love beer in general. I don't like IPAs Fair in particular. Enough. But if anyone out there is listening, find some legal hallucinogenic <laughs> plants and make beer with them. Let us know how it goes. Sell us some. <laughs> I might actually try that. Oh, no. Okay, hang on. So we're t- this is like herbal beers. Okay. Anyway, there's uh, still a couple lines of yes. this left. If any ill-tempting occur to a man, or an elf or goblin night visitors come, smear his forehead with this salve. So you can use it. Maybe you fish it out of the running water after a while. And put it on his eyes, and where his body is sore, and sense him with incense. I just like sense that phrase. Sense him with incense. Sense that's him with good. incense. Which, I mean... I'm sure that's valid English because the thingy is called yeah. a sensor, so it, it must sense. Makes sense. Ah. <laughs> that wasn't even intentional, but okay, I'm rolling with it. And sign him frequently with the sign of the cross. His condition will soon be better. So how many elf remedies or fairy remedies or supernatural remedies has this been in a row? This is quite a few. This is more than you would e- expect. Yeah, this and this is all from Leech Book 3, which is the the stuff that's more like not right, important. the local stuff. And that one I just read is the one that came directly before the really right. long one. And this is the one that comes directly after the really long one. If a man is in the water elf disease, then are the nails of his hand livid and the eyes tearful and he will look downwards. Give him this for a leechdom. Everthroat, cassock, the netherward part of Fane, a yew berry, 
just one. Lupin, Helenium, a head of marshmallow, which people may not remember was a plant before it was a gelatinous yes. monstrosity. <laughs> Finmint, dill, lily, atoloth, puligium, merubium, dock, elder, lesser centauri, wormwood, strawberry leaves, consolida. Pour them over with ale, add holy water. Sing this charm over them thrice. I have wreathed round the wounds the best of healing wreaths, that the baneful sores may neither burn nor burst, nor find their way further, nor turn foul and fallow, nor thump and throb on, nor be wicked wounds, nor dig deeply down, but he himself may hold in a way to health. Let it ache thee no more than ear in earth acheth. That basically means, like, you shouldn't have any more pain than someone who is in earth, i.e. someone who is dead. There should be no pain. That's a hell of a metaphor. Yeah, I like it. Sing also this many times. May earth bear on thee with all her might and main. These charms a man may sing over a wound. That's incredibly useful. I've got a few more, but there is one I want to be sure we get to before we run out of time, because I am responding to a listener request. (gasps) Yes! One of our listeners, uh, Yoav... Again, if we're saying your name wrong, please let us know. Asked if there are any leechdoms for the common problems of summer, i.e. sunburn and bug bites. I did respond to this on Facebook. There doesn't seem to be a lot. But contained in here are the only examples of that sort of thing that I was able to find in the entire leech book. People don't seem terribly worried about sunburn. And insect bites also are a minor thought. There are some remedies for flying venom, but for some reason, the general scholarly consensus is that flying venom is a metaphor for an airborne disease, not flying bugs that bite you. I don't know why. I can't find any explanation of why they reached that conclusion. If anyone knows, please please tell me. That would be a more interesting and maybe more accurate take. Like, that's what I would call a hornet. Right. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Well, keep going. What we do have are a few different remedies for spider bites. Ooh. And at least one of them seems also to be concerned with some kind of, like, a skin discoloration and itching, which may be sunburn. Fair enough. Also, interestingly, there's exactly one spider bite remedy in each volume of the leech book. Or rather, there's one, like, section. There's one thing. Interesting. Unlike other conditions, it doesn't come back up. Huh, okay, okay. But it does appear once in each volume. So, Leech Book 1. In case that a hunting spider bite a man. Wait, like a huntsman spider? I think those are Australian. Well, that's why I'm asking. I think the the, the division being made here is, is, is it a spider that hunts or is it a spider that waits in the web? Ah, okay, okay. In case that a hunting spider bite a man. That is the stronger spider. <laughs> I like that they're classifying their spiders as strong and weak. All right. I hope they mean the stronger venom and not like this spider is swole. He's lifting weights, man. But if, if, if a hunting spider bite a man, strike three scarifications near in a direction from the bite. Let the blood run into a green spoon of hazel wood, then throw it over the road away. Then no harm will come of it. So basically you're symbolically removing the venom. You, you cut him three times near the bite in a direction leading away from the bite. Then you collect the blood in a green hazel spoon and throw the spoon over the road. Interesting. I mean, it would potentially get the venom out to some extent. 
Yeah, theoretically. But I feel like it's it's mostly symbolic. And you're saying, like, I want the stuff that is here to go out and then go away. Yes. Yeah. Again, i.e., another remedy. Strike a scarification on the wound. Pound leechwort. Lay it on. No harm will happen to the man. You seem like very violent solutions to spider bites. I can't imagine how scarred that your average individual must be over the course of their life. I feel like they would have a lot more scars than we do. Just for all the work that they're doing and minor accidents. and Oh, probably. But also, I can't imagine this comes up a whole lot because I don't think there are... I don't think being bitten by venomous spiders is extremely common in England. No, no. So this would be something you, you don't do very often. Yeah. Against bite of a weaving spider, take the netherward part of Aferth and lichen from the blackthorn, dry it to dust, moisten with honey, tin the wound therewith. Against bite of hunting spider, black snails fried in a hot pan and rubbed to dust, and pepper and betony. Let the man eat the dust and drink it and lay it on. For bite of hunting spider, take the netherward part of mallow, lay it on the wound. Again, strike five scarifications, one on the bite and four round about it. Throw the blood with a spoon silently over a wagon way. So a road. Yeah. Huh. Similar to the first right. one. Right. But it's a, it's a variation. Interesting. This is Leech Book 2's spider remedy. And this is also the one that might be talking about sunburn, maybe. Okay. A little skin irritation of some sort. Yeah. Then again, against itch, and that all the body may be of a clean and glad and bright hue, take oil and dregs of old wine equally much, put them in a mortar, mingle well together, and smear the body with this in the sun. Is that like how to get a nice tan? <laughs> yeah, it's possible that this is like sunscreen. I never would have thought of using wine. I don't know if it would work, but it sounds like it's a similar thing. It's like a... Smear the body with this in the sun. Does that mean you have to apply it in the sun? Or does that mean, like, if you're going to be in the sun, you apply it? I think both, to a certain extent, is the implication. Yeah. Yeah, when you go outside, smear the sun. And then your skin will be not... It will continue to be of a clean and glad and bright hue, and it will not itch. There we go. Against an elf, and against a strange visitor, which I presume means, like, strange in a supernatural way, and not just, like... Our neighbor is weird, or <laughs> I mean, your neighbor I don't know could that be guy an elf. Who's walking you don't down know. the road. <laughs> yeah. But against that, rub myrrh in wine and as mickle of white frankincense, and shave off a part of the stone called agate into the wine. Zoe's making a lot of faces. This is expensive. Yes, it's incredibly expensive. It's like, oh, excuse me, while I like do this magical thing in my mother's china and also you know pour some gold in while I'm at it. Myrrh yeah, and frankincense are expensive. Yeah, because they're, they're imports. You can't grow those in England. No. And plus agate, which is a minor gemstone. Yeah. See, this is this is how you use up your spell components on your players. <laughs> right. But once you've made this very expensive drink, let him drink this for three mornings. He's drinking this? <laughs> yes. After his night's fast. Or for nine, or for twelve. For nine or for twelve nights? Yes. Look, do you want to be protected from elves and strange visitors or not? Okay. It's like, the, the leech isn't even getting paid with this stuff. The person is drinking it. Presumably the leech is charging for the components. I would hope so. This feels like a scam, but okay. It does. <laughs> <laughs> for land disease, which Cocaine thinks means nostalgia, like homesickness. Ah. Land disease. 
boil wormwood so dry or so green as he hath there in oleum infirmorum, the oleol of extreme unction, till a third part of the oil is boiled away, and smear all the body at the fire with it. And a mass priest shall perform the leechdom, if a man hath means to get one. For a bite of gang-weaving spider. This is a thing that Cocaine insists on translating in a weird way. The word used for spider in this case literally means walking weaver, which sounds like just a metaphor for spider. Yes. It walks along the web and weaves it. Yes. But Cocaine insists on considering this like a different kind of spider, so he calls it a gang-weaving or gangway-weaving spider. Okay. For a bite of gangway-weaving spider, smudge hydromel on iron. That sounds like a drug. Hydromel is a mixture of uh, water and honey. We're adding that to the dictionary. Hydromel. It's just Latin for water honey. How did I not know the Latin word for honey? Okay, because I'm translating aggressively violent things and not recipes, but okay. Also, this remedy doesn't go further than that. It doesn't say what you're supposed to do with the iron or the hydromel after. You just put it on there, and then it moves on. Okie dokie. For diarrhea. Boil in milk, horse gall, and black snail. Sip in the morning and evening. A head salve. Myrrh and aloes and frankincense. Of all a like quantity, mingle with vinegar, smear the head therewith. For the same, sulfur and swales apple. Myrrh and frankincense of every sort. Nine English warts. Pulegium, bramble, apple, lupin, bishop or fennel, rough wayrod, viper's bugloss, the whore wart. That's H-O-A-R. Wart. Good to know. Lithe wart. <laughs> of all these equal quantities. Oil of unction, holy water, holy salt, common oil. Smear thyself with this upwards on the head when thou hast rubbed them. There we go. Good to know. Do you have one more? Because I'm looking at the time. We- I've I have got one okay. more and it is short. Okay, let's go. This is the Leech Book 3. Against bite of gangway weaving spider. Take a hen's egg. Rub it up raw into ale. And a sheep's turd. New. So that the patient know it not. Give him a good cup full to drink. <laughs> No. <laughs> That's the whole thing. That's all it says. That's just like, do you have an asshole in your life you'd like to get rid of? <laughs> Put an egg, a raw egg, and a sheep's turd, <laughs> a fresh one, into ale so that the patient does not know about it and let him drink a cupful. That seems like a really terrible college prank. It really does. Oh, that's grody. Oh, well, alrighty then. <laughs> Oof. shall we get into i mean we can, i don't think we can do all of our categories but we can at least i don't think most of them even apply no but we can definitely do D D. yes the the only things that apply i think are the kitchen table which is everything yes the dungeon master's dictionary which is likewise everything yes and then how could we do this in a D game Ooh, how can or we other tabletop rpg yes Well, first off, hydromel is a great word, so we'll be adding that to the dictionary. I think you should include it in your spellbook components and, you know, so on and so forth for for flavor, because that's fun. Also, Nightwalker is super cool and should be a homebrew monster, for sure. Yeah, I I feel like it's from the same tradition that calls Grendel a shadow genga, a shadow walker. Ooh, yes. The things that go bump in the night. Mm-hmm. And then also, I think you should include herbal beers. Yes. Because that is so cool. And 
I have previously used like smokes, like nice cigars, where if you roll a con save and you can either fail or succeed and they have different effects. So for instance, one might give you better perception, but if you fail it, you go blind for an hour. So things like that. I feel like you could do the same thing here with an herbal beer Mm -hmm. and just give, give things different effects. One thing I've been thinking about for a while is I would like to design a class that's just the leech. Yes. But I I would insist on being really annoying about it because you know how like no one ever tracks their spell components in D&D? Yes. I'd make it mandatory. Like that's the whole point of this class. You have to have your spell components in order all the time. See, I, you have to go foraging for more of them. I think that would actually be an incredible game to play. If you have, like, a party of either, like, clerics or wizards or whatever, and you have to keep track of those things, I think that could be very, very fascinating in terms of how you could weave a story with that. Yeah, I've always thought that it's a, it's a really potentially fun thing that everyone is just like, ah, hey, it's too much trouble. I think it depends on what the aim of the table is, because sometimes you have instances where it's like, oh, no, we're min-maxing, or, oh... This is a very narrative, like, I don't know, politic-heavy storyline. And at that point, it's like, okay, well, you don't really have to keep track of your components, blah, blah, blah. And if the table's fine with that, then great, go for it. But what I'm thinking of is, what if you have, like, a a survival-style D&D game? Yeah. That's what I'm thinking of. Or, like, for those of you who are somewhat familiar with video games, like the Far Cry games, or in The Last of Us, you have to, you know, think about your ammo, think about how you're using it and gathering things around you in your surroundings. Something like that, where, okay, you're foraging or whatever town you go to, you have different resources in different areas. So if you know that you're, you know, finishing a mission in X town to the north, well, they're not going to have the specific ingredient that you need. So you'd better stock up now, you know, and let those consequences play out. I think that would be very, very fun. But you do need a table that is, I guess, willing to go with you on that. Because if somebody's not having a good time tracking that sort of stuff, if they're not all in, then that's going to be frustrating for them. And that's just going to bring the whole thing down. Right. But I think there's a lot of potential there. I definitely think that's something that should be integrated more. It's like your carry weight. Like, what are you actually rucking with you? Come on, man. This isn't Skyrim. You can't have 300 pounds of stuff. Right. The whole point of uh, why there's always gems in treasure originally was because, like, gold's heavy. Yeah. In the game, not in real life. Although gold is also heavy in real life. Say. And <laughs> gems are also cool in real life. But... I mean, the point of incorporating them into treasure and giving them specific gold piece values was an alternative to having to track, like, I'm carrying 40 pounds of gold. That's a lot. Yeah, that's going to get heavy, you know. It should be noted that this is a slight exaggeration. In the D&D rules as written, 40 pounds of gold pieces would be about 2,000 gold coins, which is a lot. For one person to be carrying, but come on. You've never had a character with that much cash on them? Come on. Considering modern soldiers who go into training, they're carrying 30, maybe maybe 100 pounds worth of gear, 70 pound rucks. Like, that's a lot of stuff. If you're going to be an adventurer and still be efficient at what you're doing, and you're wearing armor, you're going to need to think about what you're bringing into the field with you. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think a survival-based game would actually be really interesting because too often, like I don't know, I just I just like the idea of actually having to deal with mundane challenges. Like, can we find our spell components? Can mm-hmm. we transport the tools and materials we need? Mm-hmm. Can we find food tonight? Yeah. Yeah. Or even when it does come to facing monsters, you don't need to get up into like ancient dragon territory. An owl bear can be enough to kill you. And when you mm-hmm. play the narrative right, and when you set up the narrative right, then that can be a very, very dangerous threat. And so instead of having combat be like, oh, it's a game. Like, yes, it is a game. You should be having fun. But at the same time, it should also be like, okay, we're going on a bear hunt. You know, we're going on an owl bear hunt, whatever. You know, mm-hmm. I have my rifle. I've, you know, got my shells. I know what I'm bringing with me. I'm going to, we're going to sit here and we're going to wait. And it's not there. So we're going to wait. And so on and so forth. And then it's up to, you know, it's up to you as a table to figure out how to make that engaging or, you know, set up your traps or so on and so forth. But rather than having these things be mechanics, that can be the game itself. And I think that's an mm-hmm. underutilized part of D&D, in part because it's not, like, D&D specifically is not built for that. It is built to be sort of, you know, sword and sorcery were the heroes in this scenario. But I feel like that's changing. I feel like it. the original version was built for that, but it moved away because people are like, I don't want to track all this. Yeah, stuff. well, 100%. I guess I'm referring to, to fifth edition because that's what I was introduced to. But the earlier games, certainly, certainly. Yeah, like, if you play... Even third edition, as written, you do have to track a lot of that yeah. stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. I don't know what free they're getting up to in fifth edition. I, I bailed on the whole franchise <laughs> after four. That's fair. Because fourth was terrible, and I was like, I'm done. See, I've just homebrewed everything at this point. I'm like, I'll use the player's handbook for the numbers, and then I'll make everything else up. Oh, that thing needs yeah. extra hit points. Sure. <laughs> I'm terrible. I'm a very narrative heavy DM. One project I'd like to do, like it. If we ever have the kind of audience where, like, there would actually be people who wanted it, would be to write up, like, a supplement that's the rules for playing a leech and then, like, an herbal and, like, for imaginary plants and parts, various, like, monster parts and how you can use them. 100%. Well, we are working on the bestiary now, so there is something going into that, but... That's one of the things that I think, I mean, there's plenty of people who have homebrewed classes, but Matthew Mercer specifically, because he's a very well-known DM with Critical Role and so on and so forth, created the Blood Hunter class, which is now not quite official, but it's very, very well polished. And so that's, he's got several subcategories that you can do. So that's a cool thing to look at if that's something you're into, but you could do the exact same thing with a leech. Yeah. I've never looked at any of Matt Mercer's stuff. I really should, because I keep hearing about how great he is, he, but I also can't watch a four-hour YouTube video. That's 100% valid. I do these things while I do other things, like while I'm cooking. He's a fantastic DM, and he does have a... First off, he knows the rules inside and out because he's been doing this forever, so he's gotten there. And then, second off, he's, I mean, already a professional voice actor, so he's got the knowledge of the game itself. He's got the ability to do the voices and do the acting. And then on top of that, he has put so much effort into his world building and narrative design. that The whole thing is very, very well polished. And then one of the things that he actually has to push back against is quote unquote, the Matt Mercer effect, which is to say people watch Critical Role, they see it and they go, 
oh my gosh, I I can't be like that. I can't DM if that's what people are expecting. I can't do that. And so he's trying to say, no, 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 no. Like this started as a home game. This started as a, as a fun thing. So don't be intimidated. The whole point is just to have fun and players don't compare your DM to me. This is my industry. This is my thing. This is what I've been doing for ages. And it just sort of culminated in that. So he is a fantastic DM. And because of that, he actually has to push back against that and, and make sure that D&D and tabletop role-playing games stay accessible to everybody. And I think uh, the whole cast has done an incredible job of advocating for that. So anyway, rant over. But no, he he's a great DM and he uh, he knows his stuff when it comes to, to D&D. But I, think a I would great. add more, but I think you're running out of time. <laughs> yes, slightly so. Uh, I, we could do a couple more stuff for, for what to add for D&D, and then I gotta go. I do like the idea of herbals. Not herbal beer, but like having these plants that have known health benefits as part of your world building. And mm-hmm. like have that set out ahead of time, have it be a thing that players can learn about, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's a very easy sort of fetch quest to do that you can have an encounter at the very end where it's like, oh, yes, I need to go and get this sort of plant for the old lady down the street. And then you go there and then all of a sudden you're being ambushed by whatever sort of creature lives in those woods. But then your players are engaged because they get the combat, but they also get this herbal stuff. And then they realize, oh, we can use this. And that can lead to to bigger stuff later on. I also like the idea of a ritual to save someone from like, fairy or demonic influence that involves really annoying the local priest as you run in and out of his church. (laughs) Yes, 100%. See, honestly, players annoy local religious authorities so often anyway. This is just another great way to do it. And depending on how irritable your players are, this may escalate to actual combat with the priest, which would be funny. Yes. Also, another idea with the priest is, for instance, one of your players gets cursed, and Mm. then the priest, who they have previously disgruntled already, is like, yeah, I'm not going to bother curing you guys. Here you go. Good luck figuring out this manuscript. And then it's their <laughs> right. job to figure out how to cure their friend. Or the priest curses them because he's tired of them running around <laughs> in his church and being disrespectful. <laughs> and then they have to go find a cure. We can inverse it. They go to the local witch to find the cure. Yeah. There we go. Nice. All right. Anything else? Or are we going to... I don't have have anything else offhand cool no i think i'm good neither do i awesome this is a much much lighter episode yeah. than last times we should definitely do this again yes this was I have more great. long ones definitely definitely and listeners let us know whether well first off whether you liked us going through the leech book and sort of giving you more context about that and also since we have three books of this stuff what ailments in particular you're curious about whether it's, you know, psychological or mystical and supernatural or just like, I have a stomach ache. What can we do? Also, let us know if you try them. We want to know. Right. Yes, absolutely. We take no responsibility for what happens, but we want to know. No, none. Also, we do have more than three books of this stuff. I just haven't gotten to the other ones Ooh, yet. Ooh, okay. So this can go forever. Yeah. Like, it, if we had had 
if we hadn't taken so long, I did have a couple stuff uh, things from Pseudo Apuleius that I was going to include as well. Yes. That stuff's probably going to start showing up in Leech's Corner as well. Awesome. Things to look forward to. I have many, many medical texts just sitting around waiting for me to get to them. Wonderful. I feel like you would be a very good leech. Thank you. <laughs> like, you've got the books, you've got the knowledge, you have the context for all of these things. Yeah, but, you know, I think you have to like people more. That's extraordinarily debatable. Have you ever met a doctor? Yeah, but see, they're required, like, legally. They can't turn people away. If I was the village <laughs> leech, I'd do stuff like, I don't know, you're kind of a dick. I don't think you get medicine today. Okay, you are the next NPC in my campaign. <laughs> I'm flattered. <laughs> it's like this grouchy medicine man who's like, if you're a dick to me, I'm not going to treat you. And that's just how it works. I mean, what's stopping them? If, if, oh, if, someone is at my door. Hang oh, on. That's Stand ominous. By. It, it, it is. I'll is be it right a goblin back. visitor? Oh. Note from Future Mac. It was maintenance, but it was also time for Zoe to leave, so we're just going to move on to the correspondence section now. Hawk, a messenger. So we did have Lady Antiope on Instagram said, I'm behind on listening to y'all, but I did just listen to this one because the Seven Sleepers rang a bell. I read Kate Elliott's Crown of Stars fantasy series last fall, and she features the Seven Sleepers twist in a side plot. Elliott does so much research and includes so many real history analogs, I wasn't surprised to realize how closely hers tied to the original. Thematically, at least, not so much in exact details. So shout out to her there, and a fantasy recommendation book for you. Lady Antioch is a friend of mine from undergrad, We'll shout her out by actual name if she wants that. Yes, there we go. Uh, we got a number of posts from a, a new uh, fan. Yes. I flatter myself by saying. And one is a question about the availability of texts by a group that I was not familiar with. And now that I've looked them up, I absolutely want to read them. So if anyone has any recommendations of texts by the Radhanites, R-A-D-H-A-N-I-T-E-S, let me know. The actual post, which is in our Facebook group, is Wonders of the East Part 1 made me wonder. Do we have any sources from the Radhanites? They had traded between Europe and Asia until the 10th century, right about the time you mentioned. This is by Yoav, I think is how you say that. I think so. But there we go. I have never heard of them either. I looked them up, and it's apparently a uh, some kind of organization of Jewish medieval merchants. And I would definitely like to know their perspective on what's going on. That seems like an automatic in for a D&D &D guild. Yeah, and looking at uh, the map on their Wikipedia page, their trade route was extensive. Ooh. Like, it, it seems to go all around the Mediterranean, through the Middle East, through Central Asia, and even to Eastern Asia. Yeah, and to Iceland, apparently. Now, the purple's other trade routes of the period. Oh, okay, The blue okay. is them. Oh, the blue is them. Dude, that is wild. Yeah, look, it, it dips around under Thailand there. It does. That's crazy. So, yeah, I if anyone knows where we can find sources written by these guys, I absolutely want to know what they thought and what they were doing. They went all the way into the Volga with the Bulgars, too. That's amazing. Yeah, so they probably had an incredibly interesting perspective. Absolutely. Huh. All right. Definitely need to look into them. Yeah. Oh, uh, Yoav also says in a different comment uh, that I wanted to, to share. 
He knows of at least two places where Nagas and the Naga King play an important role in Buddhist mythology. Ooh, good to know. The first is a story about the Buddha, who is seated beneath the Bodhi tree, and demons came to torture him until the Naga King came and stood between the Buddha. Earth. That sounds uncomfortable. Stood behind <laughs> the Buddha, is what he says, and kept the demons away. The second story is, if I recall correctly, that a Buddhist wise man came to visit the Naga King in his underwater palace, and the king permitted him to go through his library, where the wise man found long-lost writings from slash of Gautama Buddha, which who's the Buddha, Siddhartha yes. Gautama. He was not allowed to copy or take them, so he memorized thousands of lines which he later wrote down as the Diamond Sutra. And then he, he adds, asterisk, I am probably remembering this incorrectly, because the Diamond Sutra is not that long, and the one from the story is supposed to be one of the longer sutras. So he wrote it down as a sutra, but... Could be a different one. There's, yeah. Well, there we go. Oh, and he also wants us to listen to a podcast called Medieval Death Trip. We'll make a note of that one. I had recently heard of that one, because they were one of the people at the podcasting roundtable at Kalamazoo. Cool. And by they, I mean he. It's just one person. But nice. I, I want to check it out because it does sound interesting. Definitely. All right. And then you wanted to go over the iTunes reviews, yeah? Yes, which you have access to. And if I do, I haven't figured out how. I chucked them in the chat. Did they come through? Oh, I did see a, a little flag that I had stuck in the chat. But yes. I've, I had the, I've had Skype minimized so I can look at other things. Fair enough. All right. We've got... One, I am pleased to say that all of these are five-star reviews, so that's fantastic. It's great to see that we've, uh, we've got a pretty good streak here. This one says, came from Saga Thing audience, great subject matter, dealt with good humor and chemistry. I'm excited to hear from them when they hit their stride. Recommended. And this is apparently from November 18th. Yes. So we're probably much closer to hitting our stride than we were then, because I don't think I was very good at editing audio at the time. I'm still not very good, but I'm better. I think we're getting a lot closer. We're definitely streamlining it on this end. Yes. That reviewer you just read from is a jumble of letters. Yes. <laughs> Do you want to share to share their screen name? Uh, LKJB space J space J. Yeah. There we go. I'm not sure if that's a screen name or if they felt the need to write something down and they just like mashed their face on the keyboard. <laughs> Either way, we appreciate you. Because I think that those those are all in the same like general General area. space. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. And here is a review I rather like from MacDracor, or possibly MickDracor, depending on how you want to say that. Mm -hmm. Second review. Like the first reviewer, I found this through Saga Thing. Check them out if you haven't. And I am not disappointed. The format, two people discussing a piece of medieval literature, is informative and a lot of fun. The hosts are knowledgeable of the material and do a great job unpacking it. I'm talking to you, their professors. <laughs> If you have the slightest interest in history or literature, or even just like D&D, you'll enjoy this show. Yeah. But we, we do try very hard to make this stuff accessible to you. Uh, we try and link all of the texts that we use in a way that you can find them and read them yourself. And we do try and cite everything as accurately as possible because we're having fun with a lot of this, but we also want to make sure that it is fundamentally accurate and academic in its perspective. And those of you listening, I'm told that iTunes ratings and reviews are a big part of the algorithm that uh, governs whether podcasts are recommended to people who are just browsing around for them, I, which is something I guess that happens. 
I always only find podcasts through other podcasts or, or through very specific Google searches. Fair enough. I don't enough. think I've ever just been recommended one by an algorithm and gone like, ooh. Yeah, but the, the iTunes and Spotify ratings are a big part of that. Yeah. So if you're enjoying this, please do rate and review us. You don't have to give us five stars, but it would be nice. <laughs> it does help support us. It does help support us. Assuming that we can figure out how technology works and make sure that we are getting access to all of these, mm -hmm. we will probably read more of them on the show. Definitely. Yes, we love you guys. We want to give you guys shout outs. All right, our final one is from... Why do I always get the ones with the random letters? I don't know if that has a pronunciation, so I'm just going to say C-S-M-I-T-H-L-M-T. I'm assuming this is someone named Smith first initial C, who works at a place called LMT or something like that. Something like that, yeah. Well, that's from November 17th. I was turned on to this podcast by Saga Thing Podcast, and I was not disappointed. The podcast is fun and insightful and look forward to hearing more. Yeah. I like that all three of the reviews that you managed to find say that they came here from Saga Thing. We love you guys. <laughs> yes, thank you so much, Saga yeah. Thing. Yeah. And Saga Thing fans. Yes, absolutely. Spread the love. All right, and then I think that was it for correspondence, but I want you to talk about what you've done in terms of creating some D&D &D bits and bobs that we're hoping oh. to expand upon. Oh, um, well, uh, ooh, I'm on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> so for those of you who haven't seen these, uh, I'm going to start posting them on the Instagram and Twitter as well. And these are little like homebrewery modules, pages that you can just take a look at and see. And one of them is from, what was the text we did it from? I'm blanking on it. It's the bestiary. Um, it's the, the, the travel guide. The wonders of the East? Yes. Wonders of the East. Uh, and the other one is the most adorable thing I've ever seen, which is helpful pot of mouse. So these are things you can incorporate into your game if you want. And I'm also going to put them in the blog because I just realized I could do that. I've been posting them on Twitter and Facebook, and I've been posting them in an image format because otherwise they don't fit in Twitter's character limit. And I only just realized, like, last week that I can post stuff like this on the blog and then just post a link. Yeah. Because, I don't know, I'm done with technology sometimes. I mean, we're medievalists. This, this is what we do. We're, we're not supposed to be good with technology. <laughs> But what's going on, kind of, is that since uh, I started actually trying to do something with our Twitter account, I keep seeing a lot of people post, like, archaeological finds and images of stuff from uh, history. And every so often, I'll see one and get struck by inspiration and go, like, that should be a thing. And then I make rules for it to use in a D&D &D game. And I also do a little line drawing of it so that it can be uh, incorporated into something visually. And it is super cute. It is super cool. And hopefully, since there were so many cool things in the Wonders of the East, and I happen to have a new book called The Book of Beasts. It is a translation from a Latin bestiary from the 12th century, and it's got loads of entries here. And so something that Mac and I would like to do is write up a book of beasts for you guys that you can incorporate into your D&D &D games. So if that sounds interesting to you, let us know. 
we will start incorporating that. We'll start writing it and then hopefully find some way to publish that and get that out to you guys. And if it sweetens the pot any, in addition to stuff that shows up in, in uh, bestiaries and the texts we read, I'm really tempted to just make stats for all of the weird marginalia we post on Twitter and put those into the book as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because they're often quite inexplicable and would deeply disturb your players, but they do have uh, pre-made art Yes, because they're marginalia. Yes, absolutely. So we're thinking of doing that, sticking it on Patreon or Kickstarter to give you guys access to that. Uh, so we'll let you know how that progresses. And if this is something that you are interested in, uh, it is so motivating for us to hear that you are interested in it, because otherwise we're sort of sitting in our rooms by ourselves going, oh, well, this would be cool in a D&D game, but, you know, I wonder if anyone else is interested in it. So if you are interested in it, if you think that this would be a cool addition to your D&D game, we want to make that accessible to you. So let us know, and we're going to be working on these projects as we go and hopefully get that up on Patreon. And hopefully if we want to do like a little published thing on Kickstarter, uh, so there you go. Yeah. Yeah. For the record, the Patreon one will be just, at, at the very least, anyone who contributed anything would just get the PDF. Absolutely. So it's not, we're not going to try and soak you for it. We just want uh, people to use these things in their games. Yeah. We just think it's cool. If you want a hard copy, let us know and we'll like do a Kickstarter yeah, or something. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think that's all we've got. Yeah. Thank you for listening to The Maniculum. Please consider leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcasts to help support the project. For more geeky additions or to see our sources and notes, check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, to join in on discussions about all things medieval. And feel free to reach out. We're on Twitter, at Maniculum, and on Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And special thanks to Sandra Boyle, who created the music for our show. You can check out her project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. Elves as creatures and as concepts, and... Alright, there's a siren, so I'm gonna wait. I don't know if you can pick up on it. Oh, I can absolutely hear it. <laughs> oh, great. Lovely. Okay, it's going away now. But anyway...